Praise the Lord. Uh, this morning, I'd like us to warmly welcome my mentor, Pastor Edmond Chan. Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. Good morning. I am so delighted to be with you all. Uh, this is one of the highlights of the trip to be able to come to this church and, and uh, fellowship with Pastor Mel and, and join you in this IDMC conference. In different places that I go to and different churches I observe, I find that there are five cries of the church globally. They are generic cries. The first cry is too many programs. The second cry of the church is too few volunteers. Can you imagine when the two combine together, what crisis it can create? Too many programs, too few volunteers. The third cry is that the leadership direction is not clear. The fourth cry of the church I found in different parts of the world is that the leaders are not united. But the greatest cry of the church comes in different words, but the fundamental basis of that cry is that the people are not discipled. It can come with words like, I'm not fed spiritually, or the church doesn't meet my needs. All these speak sometimes about the spiritual consumerism of our age, what's in it for me. But fundamental to that cry, the church is not disciple. In other words, I want to bring to you the crisis that is faced in the church of Jesus Christ worldwide. No matter how large the church is or small and struggling the church is, the crisis of discipleship, the deficit of discipleship in the spiritual health, the spiritual life, the spiritual maturity of the church confronts us. Question, wherein lies the hope? The hope lies in the fact that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The hope lies in the truth that God is raising forth a remnant, disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, who would come to make a difference. Now, please understand, it's easy to talk about following Jesus when the days are sunny and bright and we are in a worship service. I deeply appreciate the worship time that we had just now. Uh, my heart is lifted up to the throne of the Father as I worship with you. It's easy to talk about discipleship when we are worshipping God in these sunny days. It's difficult to walk the path of discipleship when days are dark and difficult. And that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to share with you how we can continue this grand adventure of faith with God in a discipleship journey when days are dark and difficult, when our world caves in. What do we do? There's a psalm that is written by Esop, Psalm 73, and it gives to us a spiritual compass of how we are to continue that journey with God even when days are difficult. Please understand this. God invites us to a journey. It is a transformational journey in our lives. And in days that are up and down, good and bad, He calls us to walk with Him because He is faithful with us. How do we do that? I want to explore that with you in Psalm 73. But before we do so, let's begin with a prayer and ask the Lord to bless this time together, shall we? 
O eternal God and Heavenly Father, we ask once again, open our eyes to behold wonderful truth out of your word. Tutor us in our faith. Draw us into your fantastic sanctuary. Help us, we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. A story was told of James Humes, presidential speechwriter for three U.S. presidents, a brilliant man. And James told of the time he was a student in Moore College where all the students were lined up to register for a New Testament course taught by a retired Episcopalian priest. Now, they lined up to sign up for this course not because the lecturer was an engaging professor, but rather because every final exams, he asked the same questions. In other words, they knew the question beforehand. Every final question, uh, every final exam, the question is, tell me about the travels of the Apostle Paul. And so the students are well prepared, except for the year that James Humes enrolled for the class, the professor changed the question. This time, it's not tell me about the travels of the Apostle Paul. This time, it's tell me about the Sermon on the Mount and critique it. So, of course, all the students did badly, except one student by the name of Tiny. Don't know why they call him Tiny. He's a huge six-foot footballer, not very bright, but he scored an A. So, all these brilliant students like James Hume surrounded Tiny and said, Tiny, how do you do it? We didn't know you know so much about the Sermon on the Mount. And Tiny says, I don't have a clue. So how do you score an A? He said, I wrote on my paper, oh, who am I to critique the sermon of my master? <laughs> Instead, he said, let me tell you all about the travels of the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Can you imagine scoring an A for that? Pet answers. Now, Asap in Psalm 73 realized that his pet answers didn't cut it. The religious cliché didn't help him. So, as we go through life, we realise we, we live through a church, a, a church life with church slogans, religious clichés, pet answers. But in Psalm 73, the psalmist Esther began with an intriguing introduction and the first thing he tells us is that the religious clichés doesn't cut it. Turn with me to Psalm 73. We begin with this interesting introduction. Verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Verse 2. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. Now these words, but as for me, is a contrast. The question is, what exactly was Asap contrasting? There are three possibilities. Number one. He was contrasting God with himself. Surely God is good, but as for me, I am not good. That's the first possibility. Second possibility, he was contrasting the pure in heart with himself. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, in contrast to those who are pure in heart, I am not pure in heart. My feet is almost slipped. But there is a third possibility which I find is more likely. It wasn't contrasting God and himself, nor even with a pure in heart with himself. He was saying something else. 
You see, I believe asset began with a religious proposition, a religious cliché. And the religious cliché is in verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And every pious Jew was saying, Amen to that. And then he says, but as for me, meaning in my personal experience, contrasted to this religious cliche, it is not so. My feet came close to stumbling. My step have almost slipped. In other words, it's almost as difficult as keeping my balance and walking on an oily marble floor. My step is almost slipped. Now, why do I think it's a contrast between a religious cliché with his personal experience? It's because how he ended, how he began the psalm is how he ended the psalm. Look at the very last verse, verse 28. Verse 28 says, But as for me, meaning in my personal experience, the nearness of God is my good. So he was giving his testimony and his personal experience and his journey and so, I, I, if you join the two together, verse 2, but as for me, verse 28, how he begins and how he ended, but as for me, in his personal experience, then the contrast is a graphic one. In other words, he's saying, you all know. We often say in our religious cliché, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, and we say an amen to that truth. But as for me, in my personal experience, I don't find this to be true. Do you see how shocking that introduction is? I mean, this is not just the senior pastor of a megachurch speaking or worship leader of a megachurch speaking. This is the worship leader of an entire nation. He is a religious leader. And he says, in my personal experience, I do not find this cliche to be true. And so the hearers begin to nudge one another. And well, what is he talking about? What does he mean? His introduction was intriguing. It was designed to grab their attention. And then he gives the reason in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant. For is the reason. The reason why in my personal experience I don't see this cliche to be true is because... I was envious of the arrogant. Now, please understand there's a huge difference between envy and jealousy. Jealousy is something that you possess, but you fear losing, right? Have my girlfriend, and then I'm afraid of, if I'm afraid of losing a girlfriend to somebody else, that's jealousy, possessiveness. But envy is something else. Envy is envying something I don't have. So if I'm single and I see other people are going couples and they have girlfriends or boyfriend and they don't have, I become envious. Or I, I look at others more gifted than me, I become envious. And here the psalmist say, I look at others richer than me in prosperity even though they are wicked and I became envious. No, I am jealous in terms of what he possessed, but I'm envious in the sense of what he doesn't have. What is it that Asaph doesn't have? Oh, he has God, but what he doesn't have that he's frustrated over, 
was that he didn't have prosperity. That's why he says in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity that I don't have, that these wicked people have, and I don't understand. They are wicked, and yet they have prosperity that I don't. He was struggling within. Can you see the angst, the frustration he had? Then from verse 4 onwards until verse 12, he tells us three things about the wicked. The first, he tells us the wicked are prosperous. We find that in verse 4. There's no pains in their death, their body is fat. Now, if you come to Singapore in our commercial street, Orchard Road, our shopping centre uh, area, and then you go to somebody and say, excuse me, don't mind my telling you, your body is fat. You probably get a slap. It's an insult, Right? But in the Middle Eastern term, your body is fat, is the idea of prosperity. I'm Chinese, and the Teochew have a saying, Jing Pui Jing Pu, means very fat, very prosperous. You see, it's in the ancient agricultural days when people don't have food and they become very lean. So the opposite of being lean because you don't have food, if you have the abundance of food, you become fat. So the idea is if you have food, you have wealth, you are fat. So your body is fat means you are wealthy. That's a, a Jewish idiom, non-Western idiom translated in different cultures, including the Chinese culture. So the first, they are prosperous. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. They are proud. And verse 8, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They are powerful. And so when Asap looked at this, he said, I begin to be envious of them. They are prosperous, they are proud, and they are powerful. And God doesn't seem to judge them. I don't understand. God is supposed to be good to those who are pure in heart, but the pure in heart are not wealthy. In fact, we suffer, we are afflicted, and then those who are wicked, they are prosperous. In spite of their pride, they are powerful. I don't understand. So now he has two inner struggles. The first struggle is, I give up. Look at verse 13. Surely in vain I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, in layman's term, what's the use? What's the use of being pure then? I give up. But he says, I cannot give up. Verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I will betray the generation of your children. I can't speak like that. I'm the worship leader of Israel. There's a story told one morning in a kitchen where mother and son was talking. The son said, Mama, I don't want to go to school. The mother says, Son, you have to go to school. Mama, I don't want to go to school. The students hate me. Son, you got to go to school. Mama, I don't want to go to school. The teachers hate me. Son, you got to go to school. You are the principal. Asap <laughs> is saying, I cannot talk like that. I am the leader. I am the worship leader. If I say I give up, what's the use of being pure? I am leading the people to, lead, uh, to worship God. How can I speak like that? So the first inner struggle, I give up, but I cannot give up. Since he cannot give up, he says, I try to understand it. We find that in verse um, 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. 
I try to understand. The word troublesome is, is exceedingly grievous to me. I don't understand. It grieves me. It troubles me. Can you see the struggle, people? I give up, but I cannot give up. So I try to understand, but I cannot understand. Now, as a pastor, I am keen that my church congregation look at the scriptures holistically. Not piecemeal, not a bit here, a bit there, a verse here, a verse there. I desire as a pastor that my congregation sees the word of God in its big picture. So if you don't mind, follow me. I, I Indulge me. I want to go back again to show you the big picture before we move on so you capture the big picture, right? The psalmist begins with an intriguing introduction in verse 1 and verse 2 with a contrast. It was a contrast between a religious cliche and his personal experience and he captured the attention of his hearers. He said, surely God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. You know this religious cliche, amen, they said. But as for me, in my personal experience, this cliche is rubbish. It doesn't work. So it shocked them and they asked why. Verse 3, he gives the reason for I was envious of the arrogant. They have something I don't have. They have prosperity. It is the prosperity of the wicked. I don't understand how this is possible. Let me tell you three things about the wicked. That's from verse 4 to verse 12. The first, they are prosperous. Their body is fat. Number two, they are proud. Pride is their necklace. And number three, they are powerful. They speak from on high. Verse 4, verse 6, verse 8. And then he says, I have two inner struggles, therefore. The first is to say, I give up. What's the use of being pure? But I cannot talk like that. I'm the worship leader. I cannot give up. So I try to understand, but I cannot understand. Can you catch the tension of this personal narrative? Can you catch the angst inside? And then comes the pivotal verse in the entire psalm, verse 17. Verse 17 says, Until I entered the sanctuary of God. If you're in the, in the habit of underlying your Bible, underline these words, until I entered the sanctuary. Because some of life's most troublesome questions cannot be answered apart from the sanctuary of God. It is when we come into the presence of God that we find His answers. And this is what the psalmist is saying. And when I entered the sanctuary of God, then I perceived, then I saw, then I understand. Apart from putting God in the equation of my life and circumstance and my troubles, I cannot understand. But when God comes into my circumstance, when God is put in the equation of my life, I begin to see, I begin to discern, I begin to understand. Here's the question. What did Asaph learn in the sanctuary of God that helped him turn his life around? What was the spiritual compass that he caught in the presence of God that helped him in his discipleship, in following God, in his journey of faith, even through difficult and dark times? He learned three truths. And these are the three truths I want to share with you to ground you in your discipleship through difficult times. Because you find that God is mightily at work when we enter the sanctuary of God. 
What did Asaph learn in the sanctuary of God? He learned three profound lessons. Lesson number one, he learned that his evaluation of life was from the wrong perspective. In other words, he was looking at life from the temporal rather than eternal. But when he entered the sanctuary of God, he caught sight of the eternal. And there was a major shift when you look at life from the eternal rather than the temporal. One of the major shifts when you come into the presence of God, when your heart is anchored in the sanctuary of God, when you grasp the eternal, one of the major shifts in your life and mind is a radical change of our values. Oh, my dear brothers and sisters, if our values are not changed, nothing is changed. Discipleship is not about religious words or religious zeal. Discipleship is about a change of value from the inside out. And how we change that value is, is to come into the presence of God to see the eternal. The eternal shapes our values. The eternal defines for us what's ultimately important in life. At the IDMC conference this weekend, I shared one of my favorite stories. It's a story of a little boy named Tommy. He has a, a puppy dog called Paddy. Love Paddy very much. And every day after school, runs in the kitchen and asks the mummy, where's Paddy? Where's Paddy? One day when he went to school, Paddy ran across the road. A truck came and killed the beloved dog and the mother was worried. How do I tell Tommy Paddy died? True enough, after school, Tommy ran to the kitchen. Mummy, where's Paddy? And mummy said, sit down, son. I have bad news for you. Paddy died. Oh, he said he went out to play. Mother was shocked. My son took it so well. Minutes later, the son came into the kitchen. Mummy, mummy, where's Paddy? Where's Paddy? And mummy said, darling, I just told you, Paddy died. This time, little Tommy was crying and crying and the mother was shocked. Tommy, I don't understand. The first time I told you Paddy died, you went out to play. Now I tell you Paddy died, you cry and cry and cry. Why, son? Why? And the little boy said, at first, I thought you said Daddy. Before we laugh at Tommy and judge him, realize this, that for many Christians, the paddies of this world, the attractions of this world, has superseded their love for the eternal daddy. Our values have been warped. When we enter the eternal, we find what is important because in the eternal, our time reference is changed not gravitated to the temporal, therefore the earthly, but the eternal, therefore the heavenly. It deals with the compulsive busyness of an overcrowded life. One of my favourite poems, a limerick, goes something like this. Mary had a little lamb, it was given her to keep, but then he joined the Baptist church and died for lack of sleep. No offence to the Baptists. It could be the Evangelical Free Church, the Anglican Church, the Methodist Church, the Pentecostal Church, but you get the idea. We can be so busy in church life that in our overcrowded busyness, we have no time to enter the presence of God. 
So the definitive question of discipleship for me is not, are you into the Word of God? Are you doing your quiet time? Are you memorizing the Scriptures? These things are important, but listen carefully now. While they are important, they are merely the means. They are not the end. We cannot confuse the means with the end. They are important means, they are important resource, the reading of the scriptures, the study of the scriptures, the memorizing of the scriptures, our daily quiet time and reflection and meditation. They are important processes, but they are still the means. What's the end? The end is right here until I entered the presence of God and then I perceive the end. So from that eternal perspective, he realized that the wicked people he envied so much because of their prosperity, their prosperity is short-lived. It has a very short uh, shelf life. It has a short expiry date. So he states it this way, verse 18, Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment. I don't know about you, but this is how the psalmist felt. I envy them, I envy them, I envy them. Until I entered the sanctuary of God and I saw, boom, how swift the judgment is. In a moment, they are destroyed. And I went like, whoa, I don't envy them. You get the idea? Because now he was able to see it from an eternal perspective. His values are therefore change. My dearest brothers and sisters, here's the point. Here's the end. In all that you do in discipleship, discipleship training, cell group, your personal growth and development, your zeal and desire for the Lord, there is an end to it. There is a place. It's not geographical place. It's the sanctuary of God where in the spirit of our heart, we are captivated by the Spirit of God. Our values are changed. We begin to have moral reasoning and discernment and understanding. We begin to see out of the darkness of our minds and of the futility of my, our minds. My quiet time this morning took me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. And the Apostle Paul was talking about two things that spoke deeply to me. First, he was talking about the futility of the mind, the darkness of understanding. And then he says, I tell you the root cause to it Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. The root cause for the futility of the mind, the darkness in the understanding, is because of the hardness of heart. When a heart is hardened, today, as you hear God's word, as you contemplate the scriptures, do not harden your heart. Now, the hardening of the heart is not, I will not do it. That's not it. The hardening of the heart is, Oh, this is nice. I will do it later. I am not so worried about the one who go, I will not do it. Why? Because when their hearts are hardened to a point, I will not do it. They will know they are in rebellion. I am worried for the Christian who goes, hmm, these are good thoughts, wonderful truth. I will do it later. 
and we are lulled into a spiritual complacency and a spiritual blindness we cannot see. There's a second truth he learned in the sanctuary of God, that his goal in life was of the wrong desire. Verse 21, 22. Look at verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. What was he pierced within in his heart with? The deceitfulness of wealth. That, that lust for wealth, that, that greediness, that dissatisfaction, that mindset where we don't know enough is enough and that in Christ we have more than enough, when we don't know that, there is a lack of contentment. There is a dissatisfaction, a frustration in our life because we wrongly think that our life is defined by the possessions we have. In the sanctuary of God, he realized that his goal in life, his pursuit in life was of the wrong desire. Be careful what you desire because what you seek, what you desire defines you. What I seek, what I desire defines me. Be careful what we seek, what we're after because if we seek the things of this world to satisfy us, it will never satisfy us. Again, one of my favourite stories is about a chaplain, a pastor who, who went to visit a chaplain, his friend, who was the chaplain of an asylum. And this friend brought the pastor to, to visit this huge asylum and he saw outside there were these lunatics in a cell. And one of them was uh, crying out with a loud voice, Lulu, Lulu. The pastor asked the chaplain, what's this about? Oh, he was jilted by his girlfriend, Lulu. Oh, poor thing. They turn around the corner and then they find another lunatic and, and he was shouting with a loud voice, Lulu, Lulu. pastor asked his friend, the chaplain, same Lulu? Yes, what happened to him? Oh, he was also jilted by Lulu. Poor thing, became mad. Then they turned around the other corner to the inner sanctum where the raving lunatics are and there was this raving lunatic screaming with a loud voice, Lulu, Lulu. Pastor was shocked. Same Lulu? Yeah, same Lulu. Poor guy. And Lulu jilted him. No, 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 no. This one, he married Lulu. <laughs> Be careful what you desire. Because when you get what you desire, it does not necessarily satisfy your life. Your life cannot be satisfied except by God alone. Don't be deceived by the grand deceptions and the grand distractions that bring you down rabbit trails and dark patches trying to satisfy the darkness of your soul that cannot be satisfied except in God alone. Be careful of living a double life, trying to find that satisfaction, trying to quench the thirst within, trying to feel the need within. 
come into the sanctuary of God. I'm a pastor for 30 years. I understand human nature as I observe human nature, both in the congregation I pastor as well as in my own life. I know how easy it is for us to be deceived into darkness, how easy it is for people to walk with double lives. Stop. Because it doesn't satisfy. And so in the sanctuary of God, he realized his desires are wrong. He was wanting prosperity. He realized even if he had, it wouldn't satisfy him. In fact, the, the greed for wealth embitters his soul. I became embittered within. Be careful of it. My dear friends, realize this about wealth. Wealth is a stewardship. It's not for us to use upon ourselves for our self-fulfillment because in reality, it doesn't satisfy us. You know why wealth doesn't satisfy us? Wealth doesn't satisfy us because this world is not our home. We are just passing through. I travel a lot in this season of my life, especially in the last seven years when I transited as a senior pastor for 25 years and in the last seven years I've been traveling and ministering to the body of Christ at large. And very often I go to a city, uh, I am put into a hotel room I don't go to a hotel room and started taking my own vacuum cleaner and vacuum the floor, put my family photos on the wall, change the curtain, bring my bookshelf and put my bookshelf in the hotel room. You know why I don't do that? Because the hotel room is not my home. I'm just passing through. In some cities like America, uh, they get me a rented car and I drive the rented car and then when I return the rented car, I don't polish the rim, I don't vacuum the car. Why? Because it's a rented car, it's not mine. Then why do we live on this planet Earth temporarily in a world that's not our home and we make ourselves at home here? Where our true home is not here. You must understand that we live in two worlds, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. There are two levels of living in the flesh and in the spirit. And if we choose to live in the flesh, in the kingdom of this world, we will never be satisfied. You can have your first million US dollars, you want five million. You have five million US dollars, you want 25 million. You have a hundred million dollars, you want the next 300 million. The heart will never be satisfied until we find our satisfaction in God then we realize whatever resources He has given to us, we are to steward it. In our church, we have the blessing of uh, purchasing three properties and renting one. The three properties we had, the Lord spoke to us in the two church buildings. Do not draw down on a bank loan, you will enter completely debt-free it came to pass exactly as the Lord has said. The first is about 20, let me get it right, $70 million. 
So at that time, it's about probably 40 million US dollars. The next building is about uh, 23 million or 22 million US dollars. Huge sums of money. So other senior pastors who are friends of mine, when they watch us raising funds and enter without debt free, came to me and asked, what's the secret of your fundraising? Your church must have a lot of rich people. I say, no, 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 you got it wrong. My church have a lot of formerly rich people. But they have given sacrificially. And now they are rich in the Lord and they are very happy in the Lord. I kid you not, they are very happy in the Lord. They have given sacrificially. When we were raising funds uh, in the offering bag that was passed around, it come to a point that the offering bag, the money is because they have given so much already. There's no more money for the church building fund to give. It dwindled. And what I find in the offering bag is gold bracelet, gold chain, gold necklace, gold ring because people have nothing more to give and they still want to give. One member came to me and said, Pastor, I've given everything. I have nothing more to give but I have a U.S. instrument and insurance policy. Can I litigate the insurance policy and give the sum to the church? I said, I cannot tell you to do that. Why? Because as a pastor, I cannot tell you litigate your insurance in case you need it. But this is what I can tell you. Whatever the Lord says to you, just do it. Because this is true in my own life and end's life. When we first came to uh, the full-time ministry as Bible college students, the Lord told me, empty your bank account. So we just follow what the Lord said. We never told anyone. We didn't tell the church board. We didn't tell our elders or deacons. So they assume, hey, I was a former uh, staff officer with the military in the Ministry of Defense and was former school teacher with the Ministry of Education, we must have some savings. They didn't realize the some savings. We gave everything away. We kept not a single cent to ourselves. We entered completely without resources in faith dependence upon the Lord. So one day when, when uh, I came home, Anne told me, oh, darling, I have to take a bus home uh, halfway and I have to go down the bus and walk. I said, why, dear? She said, oh, because uh, I have only a few coins left and the few coins is, uh, is paying only half the bus ride. And as a woman of integrity, she didn't want to pay half the bus ride and take the full bus ride. She dropped halfway and she walked. Now, this is in sunny Singapore, as sunny, hot and humid as in Cebu. So I asked her, darling, how is it like to have to walk halfway home? He said, oh, it's wonderful. I was walking home and praising the Lord and worshipping the Lord and praying. And I went like, thank you, Lord. Because I have a joyful wife. Can you imagine if I have a complaining wife? See, lah, you tell us to walk by faith, walk by faith. Now I really have to walk. <laughs> then I'm in trouble, right? We were in Bible college and, and uh, the food was from Monday to Friday. Friday night, we went to cell group. And, and in Singapore, cell group, we have food, right? So we eat our dinner there. And then we take back the leftovers for Saturday. Sunday, we went to church and we have a Sunday lunch. So Sunday lunch, we take whatever packet left for Sunday dinner. 
And then Monday to Friday, we go back to Bible college and eat uh, the, the food in the Bible college until Friday cell group. We live like that. And I tell you, we were joyous. I did not just empty my bank account once. I emptied it the second time and then entered it the third time when we have our second church building and our third church building. And I told my fellow pastors, I do not expect you to do what I do. Just become a senior pastor, I do that. I say, all of you must do that. I don't do that. I just ask you, as the pastoral staff, whatever the Lord says to you, just do it. Why? It's a stewardship, that's why. Now, here's a question I ask about stewardship. True or false question. True or false. God wants you to be good stewards of all that you own. True or false. God wants you to be good stewards of all that you own. It's a trick question. The answer is, if you are a steward of all that you own, you are not a steward. You are an owner. Here's how it should be phrased. Not God wants you to be a good steward of all that you own, but rather, God wants us to be good stewards of all that He owns and He entrusts it to us to steward. We don't own it. We are the steward. And if we don't own it, it's easier to steward it. It's hard to steward it if we think we own it. You get the idea? So when some of my senior pastor's friends ask, hey, how, how do you raise funds in your church? You raise literally millions and millions for now three church are building. How do you do it? I say very simple. On a Sunday, you ask all the congregation members to stand up. Then during the offering time as they stand up, you ask them to put their hands into their neighbor's wallet and their neighbor's purse and, and wave their neighbor's wallet or their neighbor's purse as a wave offering to the Lord. When the offering back comes, they are free to give how much from their neighbor's wallet or their neighbor's purse. Now here's the question. If you are holding your neighbor's wallet or purse, how much will you give? Oh, you know why? It's not yours. And not only that, if you don't give all, your neighbour might be giving your all from your wallet. Might as well give all. You don't own it. Now, get the idea. Because it is not yours, it's easier to give. That's precisely my point. The reason why it's so hard to give in stewardship is because we think it's mine. And we think it's mine to hopefully my possession would fulfill me without realizing my possession possesses me. But in the sanctuary of God, when we look at the eternal and realize what's important, we also recognize a change of value and our desires purified. We are stewards and not owners. We are set free. Here's the third lesson Asap learned in the sanctuary. The first, his evaluation of life was from the wrong perspective. The second, his desire, uh, his goal in life was of the wrong desire. And the third, his foundation in life was of the wrong hope. Look at how he phrased it in verse 23, 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. You see, before he entered the sanctuary of God, the focus was in himself. I give up, but 
I cannot give up. I try to understand, but I cannot understand. In the sanctuary of God, there was a shift in his foundation, in his dependency. Now it is not I, but rather now it is you have taken hold of my right hand. Your counsel, you will guide me. The word taken hold of my right hand is the Hebrew idiom for sponsorship. And there are two basic notions to sponsorship. The first, when God takes us by the right hand to be sponsoring us, the idea is, I will protect you. And the second, I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will provide the resources you need. And not just the resources you need, but more importantly, the guidance you need. With my counsel, I will guide you. That God-centeredness, that theocentricity, putting God in the equation of our life is fundamentally important. That is why the great need of the church today is a fresh vision of God. The great need of the church today is to enter the sanctuary of God where we understand God is on His throne. Our God don't sit on a plastic stool. It is on an eternal throne, sovereign, high, lifted up, holy, 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 a tri-holy God. When Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6, holy, 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 he was using a Hebrew superlative to mean the most holy God, set apart, transcendent, above all else, distinct, unique, the awesome, almighty, self-sufficient God. Here's the bottom line, people. My time is quickly caught up with me. We need a vision of God on the throne. He is the foundation of our life. His word, His revelation, His truth guides us. He anchors us and roots us. We cannot shift from that theological mooring. Whatever difficulty you and I may face in life, remember, God is on His throne. God is in control. Whatever difficulties or darkness, difficult days in our life, remember God cares. The God who is in the throne, who is in control, cares for me and He'll bring His redemptive purposes to pass. Let me close with a simple thing that I have written up. You see, I was in Japan. I bought a cheap, cheaper fountain pen at a discount. I came back to Singapore, happy with the fountain pen I bought. I put brown ink into it and I started writing. I wanted to just test the pen. And the words I wrote was, when your world caves in. And then I tried to, to write the words uh, just to test the pen with the words, by God's grace. Suddenly, the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and I don't use that lightly because the words I write now, I recognize it, it doesn't just come from me. The, the words I've written spoke deeply in my heart after I wrote it because the words just flowed as I was simply testing the pen. I want to close with these words that the Lord filled my heart to write after I wrote the words, when your world caves in. By God's grace, clarity can rise out of confusion and discernment out of the dark night of the soul. There is veracity in the saying 
that in our darkest nights, God often does His deepest work, quietly, steadily, faithfully. But our pain is nonetheless real and our doubts terrifying. Life has taken an unexpected turn and the dark night crushes its dreams. Yet it mercifully compensates life with a sacred wisdom, a wisdom that is gleaned through pain, hardship, loss, and deep disappointments. Thus, the dark melancholy of life ironically gives discernment to life's enigma and depth to life's experience. But we must choose to learn, for melancholy doesn't automatically add to life's meaning nor sadness to life's sagacity. And only time will tell if we have learned well. For if we do, we will redemptively find grace in gloom, blessing in barrenness, perspective in pain, and worship in our wilderness. Thus we will know in due time and good measure the trajectory of our life and the tenacity of our soul. When we come in the presence of God, even in dark and difficult times, God gave us wisdom, strength, guidance. So much so the psalmist can cry out now, Whom do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but God Himself. That's Psalm 73 verse 25 as he comes to a grand crescendo. Verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, God, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The right foundation. Whom, have I have, whom do I have in heaven but you? The right desire. Because he said, Beside you I desire nothing on earth. Verse 27, Behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. The right perspective. Now comes this crescendo. Verse 28, the last verse. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of your works. The nearness of God is my good. When you are in doubt, or difficult times enter the sanctuary of God would you bow with me and pray Heavenly Father thank you for this blessed time we share in your word help us to realize Lord that this world is not our home and therefore the answers cannot be found merely from the external and the temporal and the earthly. But rather, Lord, the truth is found in the sanctuary of God. Holy Father, help us to enter your sanctuary. The Bible tells us that God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross for us so that believing in Him, we might have a new relationship with God that ushers us into His presence, into the sanctuary of God. In other words, brothers and sisters, the cross of Jesus at Calvary made it possible for you and I to enter God's sanctuary. 
And today I encourage you, whatever life's challenges, whatever life's difficulties, enter God's sanctuary that you might see things not from the temporal but the eternal, that your values might be reshaped, that your theological moorings, your grounding may be rooted in God Himself, that your desires purified, your perspective changed. Heavenly Father, this is our desire. We pray you help us in this. In Jesus' name, Amen. Praise the Lord. What a very powerful message that we all need to hear and we need to be reminded of. And, you know, at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters to us is God. Sometimes we, we fail to perceive the, the brevity and the fragility of our lives most especially for young people, sometimes, although we know that death is a reality, we always think in terms of death is far from happening to me personally. Sometimes even for those who are in their 50s and in their 60s, they still think that death is far from them. But what a wonderful reminder, my dear brothers and sisters. This is not our home. This is not where God has destined us to be. Our home is where our Savior is. And we need to align our hearts we need to align our focus, our passion, our aspiration, our dreams, our very lives to that which is truly important. And in the end, all of these things will pass. We will be stripped naked of everything we have ever possessed in this life. And when we've been stripped naked of everything you and I have, then we realize only God really matters. But may that realization come not when we are on our deathbed but while we are still strong and alive while we have good health while we are still able to to serve may that realization be true not later but here and now because then and there we will only be regretting the things that we have wasted. If I may respond to the message of Pastor Edmund Chan, I'd like to say this. Don't waste your life. 
Let your life count for Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for visiting us with your presence. Your presence means everything to us. Nothing else really matters, Lord. You alone truly satisfy. And we ask for your forgiveness, Lord. When sometimes, Lord, the things that surround us become more important and you. You are the center, Lord. You are the goal. You are the finish line. You're all that really matters. Pray, oh God, change our hearts. Change our hearts and may we, may we see you for all your glory, all your beauty, all your majesty. Because you are beautiful, oh God. so beautiful nothing else nobody else compares with you thank you for allowing us to enter your sanctuary oh God just to see just a bit of that glory and how precious it would be when the day comes, Lord, that we enter your gates and we shall meet you face to face. Our Savior, our Lord, our Master, thank you for loving us. 
Thank you for loving us, O oh God, though we are unlovable, though we were rebels and sinners and enemies of yours. You chose not to fold your hands and be indifferent to, to us. But Lord, you saw us and, and Lord, you walked steadfastly towards Jerusalem, Lord, the place where you would die. You had no sin. You had no stain. You were without spot and without blemish. And yet you died in our stead. How precious your love is. How precious, Lord, the atoning grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. And may, hope, may we hold that dearly in our hearts, oh God. May we not simply be going through the motions of Christianity. Lord, let, let the way we see things change. Let true discipleship take place, Father, as we abide in you, as we love you, as we serve you, as we worship you. As we declare in word and in life that you are everything to us. You are the be all and the end all of our lives. We pray, Father, you plant that in our hearts. Pray you minister to us continually, Father. Continue to strive with us. Sanctify us. And we will trust you, Lord, that the good work you started with us, you will complete it, oh God. You will complete the good work you have started. Allow us to persevere all the way, all the way to the end. Allow us to finish strong, oh God. May your church, Lord, truly serve its purpose to be salt and light in this city and in this community. We thank you, oh God, for being with us this morning. Thank you for Pastor Edmund and his wife, Pastor Anne. We know it's a sacrifice for them to be here with us with all their busy schedules. But we thank you, Lord, that you brought your servants to remind us that the God that we serve is good and the nearness of God is our good. Thank you, Lord. And we pray that you bless them. Pray, give them good health and strength. We pray, Father, that everything they need to fulfill their call, you will supply. And that you will not fail them. And we know, Lord, you will not. We thank you for this morning. And Lord, we also thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to, to give you what belongs to you. Our tithes. Your tithes, actually. Allow us to just... Give them, Lord, with, with hearts 
that truly love you, declaring, Lord, we don't own anything. You own everything. And Lord, may you just be so kind to bless and prosper us, not because we need more, but because we want to bless your kingdom more. Because we want Christ to be exalted. We want Christ to be made known. Give you thanks and praise, Lord, for everything. And we will be very careful, Lord, to give you back all the glory, all the praises, and all the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray.